0: Welcome to episode 66 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief
1: of the Journal of Family Practice. Hello, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician
2: and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Just before we started, we were just talking about the aurora borealis as a reflection of all the sunspot activity this week. By the time you get this recording, that will have passed. But I do want to point out that there are some fascinating astronomical phenomena that are going on. We're recording this about two weeks before the winter solstice, which means this is prime time to watch the Geminid meteor showers. These are usually in full swing after about nine o'clock at night. Um, d- later on this month, the moon is going to be waxing. So, you want to make sure if you want to see the, you get your best chance to see these meteors, you should be facing away from the moon. Also, on the winter solstice, that's on December 21st, for the first time in 800 years, we'll have the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. So, it's going to look like a big giant star in the
1: sky.
0: Yeah, Henry, I think I'm going to wait till the next time it comes around. Probably, you know, <laughs> this one. I'll bring out my telescope. So on this podcast, we highlight ast- astronomy as well as patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence where you get a poem every day plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators in this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can now get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for just listening to us. Uh, Go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. This week, because of the ongoing surge in COVID, we're going to discuss several studies on medications for managing patients with COVID-19, repurposed antivirals, banlavivimab, and convalescent serum. Henry, you've got a, a some cheese, uh, some fromage to talk about as well. Yeah, I'm often a
2: cheesy kind of guy. So, so while we plan to discuss medications in this episode, it's a good uh, opportunity to remind ourselves that even if these were fantastically effective, medications won't stop the pandemic. We really need to focus on traditional preventive strategies to to do this. In earlier podcasts, we've talked about vaccine efficacy and a model that pointed out the need for really high levels of vaccine uptake to stop the the pandemic in its tracks. We've also talked about mask wearing and physical distancing. None of these uh, measures in isolation are perfect. And I'm reminded that back in the 90s, there was a really nifty model that was developed to try to look at other imperfect strategies to reduce medical errors and improve patient safety. This model uh, used Swiss cheese at its conceptual framework. And so, if you can imagine, each slice of cheese has holes, but the more layers of cheese that you have, the less likely that the holes are going to line up, and therefore, the less likely something is going to sneak through. And it turns out that we have a model that can be used to illustrate how a combination of personal and societal measures can stop the COVID pandemic. And these personal strategies include things like wearing masks, hand washing, coughing and sneezing into your sleeve, physical distancing, avoiding crowds, that kind of stuff. Some of the societal measures include testing and tracing, ventilation and air filtration systems, public messaging, isolation, and vaccines. So for those of you who sign up for our free um, CME, there's also a figure illustrating this Swiss cheese model that you can use to uh, educate your patients or if you happen to have influence over the public to maybe use this as a conceptual framework.
0: Yeah, thanks, Henry. I'm gonna. <clears throat> I just got some Swiss cheese to make Reuben sandwiches, so I'm gonna try that after we finish recording. I'm not <laughs> sure, quite sure I believe you, but I'm gonna run some water over a stack of eight pieces of Swiss cheese, and we'll see. We'll see. Okay, um, thank you for that. And I'm gonna start off with my first poem, which is from the World Health Organization's Solidarity Trial. And I'm not sure why they called it a Solidarity Trial, but you know, uh very good. And this was uh, the headline: is found no benefits of four antiviral drugs, including remdesivir, and that's really where the focus is going to be of our discussion. So this was a large study. It was set in over four hundred hospitals in thirty countries. A lot of those countries had very different health systems than the U.S. and perhaps different criteria for hospitalization, different. Um, Uh, treatments that are being used. So, you know, there's some caveats around applying this to the U.S. and and Western European context. Uh, They had a total of over 11,000 adults who were hospitalized with COVID-19 and who were expected to need at least three days of hospitalization. They were randomized to one of four study drugs from Desivir, our old favorite hydroxychloroquine, Lopinavir, or interferon beta, or usual care. Different drugs were available at each institution, so some only had two or three of these drugs to randomize patients to. In some cases, patients in the usual care group served as controls for patients in more than one active treatment group. So they used standard doses of these drugs. This was an open-label trial, so patients you know, knew what they were on, their caregivers knew what they were taking. Uh, So the groups were balanced at baseline. Adherence to the assigned medications was about 95% in all groups. They don't tell us what other treatments were given to these different um, patients. And so that makes you wonder, is it possible that if someone knew they were being given hydroxychloroquine or in the usual care group, maybe they were more likely to be given some other treatments? We don't know that for sure. Um, the main outcome was in-hospital mortality. Analysis was by intention to treat. The hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, and interferon arms were discontinued for futility uh, during the summer and fall. So they found no benefit. When they looked at the kaplan Meyer, the survival curves, they found that none of the drugs reduced mortality, either for the entire group or for subgroups by age, by whether or not they were ventilated, by geographic region, or by whether or not they were on corticosteroids. Patients getting any of the drugs had somewhat longer hospital stays, but that's probably just because some patients in some countries were kept in the hospital just to finish their course, uh, their sort of assigned course of treatment. They also summarized the results of all published trials of remdesivir. Remember, they found no benefits of remdesivir in their study here, um, but they looked at what did the other studies of remdesivir find, and there have been four other published trials So patients not requiring mechanical ventilation had a trend toward reduced mortality, if you put all the data together from those studies, while groups requiring high levels of ventilatory support had a trend in the other direction. So the relative risk for those not requiring a ventilator um, was 0.8, 95% confidence interval, 0.63 to 1.01. So pretty strong trend favoring remdesivir in patients with less need for respiratory support. On the other hand, those requiring high levels of support trend was in the other direction, re- relative risk for mortality 1.16, confidence interval 0.85 to 1.6. Even if that was a real change in mortality, reduction in mortality, the absolute reduction was small in that lower risk group, 1.4%, so uh, lower than that seen in the ACT-1 trial. The, really, the the strongest signal for efficacy of remdesivir was in the ACT-1 trial, the US NIH trial, and that was in the group getting low flow oxygen. That was They had a significant benefit, but it was a fairly small subset. And so I think we're maybe um, a little less clear that remdesivir is a, a big win. You know, it has been shown to reduce length of hospital stay, but the effect on mortality, I think, is a little more uncertain after looking at these data.
1: John, any comments? I think this highlights what Henry mentioned earlier, that is that these treatment drugs are certainly not silver bullets at all. The effect size of all of them, uh, which is a very short list for reducing morbidity and mortality from COVID, is not very large. So we really need to continue to work on prevention and vaccination.
0: Yeah, Henry, comments?
2: Well, I just want to start with a quote that I think is attributable to Sir Winston Churchill, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that this pandemic has given lots of opportunities to do um, studies in a way that are nimble and creative, and I think the WHO study is remarkable in that regard, that having 30 countries, over 400 hospitals, that it yet was nimble enough to be able to add capacity as, um, uh, rather quickly as the trial goes on as you pointed out, it included rich nations as well as poor nations, which means that that local care is likely to be very uh, highly variable. Uh, and so my suspicion is that if there's a role for remdesivir, it's likely to be very nuanced. And that when you look at all of the other studies, as you pointed out in this, and also in the BMJ meta-analysis we did several episodes ago, I think if there is a role for remdesivir, it's in a very narrow population, and those data just don't look very robust to me.
0: Yeah, what's kind of missing for me in these studies is, particularly in this one, is they don't tell us how long patients had been symptomatic before they were started on the drug, and that's something that might vary between healthcare settings, and if you think about other antiviral drugs, they tend to work best when given early on during viral replication. And and that's what we see here. It, you know, the, the signals seem to be for people who are earlier in the course of their illness who aren't as sick yet. Uh, they're only requiring low flow oxygen. And that's what NIH is saying is that, you know, remdesivir is recommended for hospitalized patients on low flow oxygen, but they're kind of wishy-washy on high flow oxygen and say don't use it if they're mechanically ventilated. And I, I still think that's probably reasonable advice for our setting. John, uh, you've got a
1: quiz. Yes, Mark. I originally wrote this question to irritate you because you've had to summarize so many hydroxychloroquine studies. Uh, So let's get to it. For which of the following individuals has hydroxychloroquine been shown effective for COVID-19 infection? Number one, hospitalized patients on the ventilator. Number two, hospitalized patients not requiring mechanical life support. Number three, outpatients with mild or early symptoms. Number four, for preventing infections among close contacts of COVID-19 infected individuals or number five,
0: none of the above. And of course, stay tuned for the answer. Thanks, John. I'm honored and I hope I get it right After having summarized all those studies. Um, Henry, it's your turn to talk about the BLAZE trial. Thank you. I'd like to begin with a little bit of a mea
2: culpa. In an earlier podcast, maybe a month or so ago, I made some note about the publicity given to this new monoclonal antibody, bamlanivimab. And at that time, I had mentioned that I was looking at PubMed, preprint servers, uh, COVID um, research aggregator site, and clinical trials registries, and that I had found no publications and could only find uh, five trials in the registries. And of all those five trials, only one with 24 patients had been completed. It turns out, and I went back and I looked at it, that I was right, kind of. And that's because there was a, a problem with Bamlinivimab. It turns out that's a new name given to a product that was called called, um, a much easier to pronounce LYCOV555. And so I'm going to present a report of an interim analysis of the Blaze 1 trial, which was a phase 2 trial published in the New England Journal just before Halloween. Now I'm Henry, gonna, I
0: got to say I, I you're very brave for taking on a study where you have to repeatedly say Bamla Nivamab. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's a,
2: it's crazy. I think Lycov555 is a much easier to pronounce and maybe I'll stick with that. No. Uh, yeah, so So the 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 New England Journal publication, we have a supplement from the emergency use authorization. So let me start with just the um New England Journal piece and that report identified 452 outpatients. So this is a novel uh, therapy for outpatient use. These are patients who were not using oxygen, who had positive SARS-CoV tests, and at least one symptom that would be in the COVID-19 uh, lineup, uh, cough, myalgias, fever, et cetera. They randomized the patients to receive a single intravenous infusion of either a placebo or one of three doses of this neutralizing antibody um, stuff. Okay. Um, the three doses were you know, largely irrelevant in terms of the specifics because the, the, the data were still underway as this, at the time that this was published, and the primary outcome that they were reporting was viral load, which is really not all that important because they didn't really tell us anything about infectivity, and only one of the three doses was effective at that level. Now, the more important piece is that they did provide 29 days of follow-up with regards to um, more clinically important outcomes. So after that 29 days of um, follow-up, five of the active treated patients, that was just a little over 1.5%, were hospitalized compared to just over 6% of the placebo-treated patients. So that would work out to be a number needed to treat of about 22. Now, they don't tell us, If this was a chance kind of uh, phenomenon or not, they reported no p values. But me seeing that this was a two by two table, I could do my own personal chi square, and it turns out that that was statistically significant by my own crude analysis. They also said that the patients had some modest improvement in symptom scores, but this was only one point on a twenty four point scale. So whether this was statistically significant or not, it's probably not clinically important. Now, in the emergency use authorization, they reported an additional um, 13 patients, um, all of them in the placebo group, none of whom were hospitalized. And so, these updated uh, data would translate into a slightly higher number needed to treat of 25 to prevent one hospitalization. Now, so, this emergency use authorization is that the medication is indicated for persons age 12 and older, weighing at least 88 pounds. So this is hopeful, but it is a single report from a preliminary analysis of a small phase two study. And so we have lots of cautions. But this is the first time in my recollection that we have a medication to consider for outpatients. And, and then the other thing is we don't know if this does anything for our more severely ill hospitalized patients.
0: Mark? Yeah, this is um, interesting. And I think as a family physician, it's, you know, highly relevant to us. Of course, they're not making uh, enough of this. Um, Unless you're a personal friend of the president, uh, you have to be subjected to a lottery or uh, some other kind of allocation process. And I know that states are handling this differently, how they distribute these drugs, the Regeneron being the other one. Um, So, no, this is interesting. I mean, uh, it's it was odd that the viral load was only decreased with the intermediate dose. That made no sense to me. Um, you're right. It's not, it's sort of a disease oriented endpoint, So who cares? But, um, you know, and the other thing, the other point I'd make is that the Regeneron, Uh, trial had very similar results, similar kind of monoclonal antibody attacking a similar target on the virus and had very similar findings and similar effects. So in a way, those being consistent kind of strengthens the case for each one. John? Like you said,
1: it's going to take a while to ramp up production of these monoclonal antibodies. My guess is by the time they're more available on a widespread basis. That a bunch of people are going to be immunized, and i don 't think this is going to be an important factor in suppressing covid nineteen pandemic
0: yeah that's a good point, uh, assuming people are willing to get immunized, and um, you know certainly there have been surveys uh, having showing some skepticism, but i'm hopeful that as we get a new administration as we get very clear messaging as the results of these trials are published, and you know I dug into the FDA report on the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, they had identical results in terms of benefit for uh, white patients, black patients, Hispanic patients. And they had a significant percentage of the population studied was uh where black patients were about ten percent hispanic about twenty five percent so that's i think hopefully reassuring to patients who might be you know uh, have you know some suspicion of the medical community that's you know not <laughs> unjustified based on historical precedent, so hopefully that will be reassuring and i think seeing that our neighbors got the immunization and a a, a few weeks later, they're still out mowing the lawn or shoveling the uh, snow off the driveway, that that should hopefully start to reassure people that it's safe. Thank you for that. And uh, John, you have the last poem.
1: Yes, this is a human antibody trial. That is use of convalescent serum. That is serum from patients who have been infected that's then uh, treated and injected and used as a treatment. So there have been several trials of convalescent plasma. Uh, We've previously reviewed studies demonstrating that this is safe, and also it was included early on the IDSA management guidelines for COVID. We also reported potential benefit based on an early case series, but in terms of significant randomized trials, there hasn't been much other than the one I'm going to present In addition to what's called the PLACID trial, which was completed recently in India, and that trial failed to show any benefit. Now, this trial was a randomized trial from Argentina, and the researchers enrolled COVID-19 patients who were hospitalized with radiographically confirmed severe COVID-19 pneumonia. So these are sick patients. They had to have an oxygen saturation below 93 on room air, or they used another measure of hypoxia as well, or worsening symptoms based on the, the SOFA score. They had to have an increase of two points from their baseline, so they were getting worse. Patients were randomized to receive either the convalescent serum or placebo. Median age of the study participants was 62 years and the median time between onset of symptoms and enrollment was eight days. And I think that's that's a very important reason for this negative trial, I believe. Two-thirds of the patients were male. 65% had pre-existing conditions. Importantly, 90% of the patients were also receiving corticosteroids at the time of enrollment. 30-day follow-up, 11% of patients receiving the serum died, and 11.4% of placebo-treated patients died. So there was no difference in the mortality rate, nor was there any difference in respiratory decline or discharge status. Uh, They looked for subgroup uh, factors and couldn't find that it was effective in any subgroup either. Now, if this treatment is going to be effective, of course, one would probably want to use it earlier on, before the virus is replicated so widely throughout the body. So it's not surprising that both of these trials in which it was used in hospitalized patients, it was ineffective. Uh, This may go the same way as the monoclonal antibodies. That is, it's uh, labor-intensive to produce this uh, convalescent serum. And my guess is, once again, that it's not going to be a large factor, especially in view of the fact that it's not helping more severe patients.
0: Henry, you have any thoughts on this? Thank you. Uh,
2: so I think the the other important point to make in this, besides the fact that this stuff is safe, is that in the presence of corticosteroids, which 90% of the people were taking, that the, the convalescent serum really doesn't make much of a difference. And it makes me wonder if if we start a cheap, easily accessible therapy like corticosteroids, if we even need to worry about convalescent serum at all, regardless of the timing,
0: yeah, I think it's it's all about timing, and if it seems that if convalescent plasma was going to be helpful, it would be helpful earlier on. Uh, I would think, you know, before someone needed a steroid. So, uh, But it's so difficult to, to do and there's limited supplies that's being reserved for the sicker patients who it doesn't seem to help. So, yeah, just to summarize uh, remdesivir, uh, if it is helpful, it's going to be primarily in hospitalized patients on low-flow oxygen, not in those needing more ventilatory support. If um, uh, bamilimumab, <laughs> I, I got it. Lycov555. <laughs> like yeah, the, the monoclonal antibodies are helpful in outpatients who have symptomatic confirmed COVID-19 but are not requiring oxygen, uh, and it does seem to provide some benefit. And then the convalescent plasma, we still haven't seen any uh, benefit signal, although it does appear to be safe. So uh, that's a, a little summary, and the quiz answer is coming from uh, John, I think.
1: Yes, once again, the question is, for which of the following individuals has hydroxychloroquine been shown effective for COVID-19? Number one, hospitalized patients on ventilators. Two, hospitalized patients not requiring mechanical life support. Three, outpatients with mild symptoms. Four, for preventing infections among close contacts of COVID-19-infected individuals. Or five, none of the above. Of course, you knew the answer to this one. That is none of the above. Randomized trials have been conducted for all of these situations, and despite suggestive results of early observational studies, hydroxychloroquine randomized trials have all been negative. So it really should not be prescribed or used for COVID-19 infections. And again, Mark, uh, hopefully this will be the last time we mention
0: hydroxychloroquine for COVID. Yeah, you have in the script here. Sure. I only wrote this question to irritate Dr. Abel. <laughs> so that. Thanks for not reading that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's see. Who's doing the, the literary recommendation? Henry, is it your turn?
2: Yes, it is. So I want to recommend Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. It's a profound book. Uh, He writes so well, if you've read his um, Checklist Manifesto and other works, you know he writes extraordinarily well. And the fact that he's a surgeon makes it even more striking. Uh, In the first part of this book, he addresses some of the realities of aging and death and the disconnect between what healthcare professionals can do as opposed to what we should do. He follows hospice nurses, visits um, nursing home directors and the like to identify good and bad models. And through a series of compelling personal stories and interviews, he then provides some examples of effective care. And the last part of the book really comes with some recommendations for better approaches to caring for the elderly. It's a powerful book that, frankly, at its core is a love letter, but from a dutiful son to his father. I really encourage you to read that if you care for the elderly, whether you're a clinician or if it's just uh, as a family member.
0: If I remember correctly, he was um, named to Biden's COVID task force, Um, certainly an, an important and influential thinker in medicine. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to give CME for physicians, including for this podcast. They designate this internet enduring activity for a maximum half credit of AMA PRA Category 1 credit. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA and makes me read this every time. It is the policy of IAFP to ensure balance, independence, objectivity, and scientific rigor in all its educational activities. By way of disclosure, Henry and I are paid by Wiley as editorial consultants to write poems, but we're not paid to do this podcast. And here's the URL for getting that CME credit, iafp.mclms.net. And someday they're going to tell me what MCLMS stands for. Uh, I'm dying to know. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. And we're going to talk to you soon with more primary care updates.